Well, we've um, made it to the end of this first letter of the Corinthians, and um, please pray for me too that my voice will last and I'll make it through to the end of this sermon as well. Uh, it hasn't been a, uh, it's been an interesting journey through this book, uh, 18 messages all up, um, some encouraging, some confronting. But it can be easy to kind of gloss over this last chapter, chapter 16, as it can be the ending of a lot of the New Testament letters. They contain a collection of greetings and instructions and plans. They're very, we're very specific to the original historical context and we might wonder what relevance they have to us. But these parts of these letters are actually really important. They help remind us of the context in which the teaching of these letters is given. These letters, they're not carefully carefully planned and crafted documents put together by a committee, uh, proofread and checked and tweaked and edited over months before being published as official papers to be delivered at a professional conference. No, they're personal letters written by individual people to a community of real people with whom they have a special relationship. We'll see this especially in 2 Corinthians in a few weeks when Paul expresses something of his own personal anguish over the tensions that had uh, arisen between him and the Corinthians. The gospel isn't a concept, it's not a document, it's the living dynamic action of God among his people. God in relationship with his people and his people in relationship with one another. The gospel works its way out in the nitty gritty of people's everyday lives and relationships, not just in the halls of Bible colleges and theological libraries. So it's important that we see that in this letter. Immediately after that glorious, uh, quite solid doctrinal chapter on the resurrection in chapter 15, we're taken straight back to this nitty-gritty and we're reminded that we're in relationship with one another, uh, not just in our local church, but with our brothers and sisters around the world. So they're told about giving generously to their brothers and sisters in Judea. At this time, the Christians of Judea were struggling. They faced persecution from the Jews But there was also a famine that had spread across the whole region of Judea. The Corinthians were very wealthy and they were in a position to help practically their brothers and sisters. And so if you remember at the end of chapter 15, Paul says, your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Well, the first labour in the Lord for them was to be generous in helping their brothers and sisters, people whom they'd probably never, ever met in person. And then reminded of other people with whom they had a a special relationship. There's Timothy 
Timothy was with Paul when he first came to Corinth. There's Aquila and Prisca, which is short for Priscilla. They were living in Corinth. They'd recently moved there when Paul came and Paul uh, lived with them in the time that he was there. There was Apollos. Apollos came to Corinth after Paul had left and he continued to strengthen and to teach the church. He may well have been there uh, when the letter was received, um, although it says he wasn't. But they knew him. And significantly, one of their own, Stephanus, whom we'll look at uh, in a little while. But I want to focus this morning on this call in verses 13 and 14. This call is really, in one sense, a summary of all that Paul has been saying in his letter. Four brief points that will help us recall the heart of what we've been learning in the last five months. So we're told to be watchful. 1 Corinthians was and is, still is, a bit of a wake-up call for the church. From time to time we all need to be taken by the shoulders and uh, look straight in the eye and be told to stop our foolishness and to pull up our socks and do what's right and wise and mature. The Corinthians had been trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. They'd taken on board the so-called wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of God displayed in the cross of Christ. They'd been listening to voices that said that the cross was foolishness and that they needed something else, something extra in order to be spiritual and mature. They'd been seeking to find their security and identity in things of the world instead of the hope given by Christ and made real among them by the working of the Holy Spirit. They'd become comfortable and complacent, not realising that the security that this world offers is only momentary and fragile. What they didn't know was that in only a few short years, their brand new emperor, Nero Caesar, who started his reign around the time that this letter was written, would unleash a persecution against Christians across the empire with a a brutality that surpassed imagination. But Paul and the other apostles knew that such a time was coming. Jesus had foretold it. To be watchful, then, is to be prepared. It's to use the times of ease and comfort, not to become complacent and soft, but to steel ourselves in the strength of the Lord, so that if and when tribulation comes, we will, by his grace, be able to stand firm and remain faithful. There are two occasions in the Gospels when Jesus uses this word, be watchful. The first is when he was uh, speaking to his disciples 
opposite the temple mount and he spoke of the coming destruction of the temple. Therefore stay awake, that's that word, be watchful. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, being watchful, and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus was preparing them for a time that he described as great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And he said that he would give them signs to look out for that would indicate that the time was near. But he didn't want them to be led astray by false Christs and false prophets offering empty hopes. They were to have their wits about them. They were to think clearly They were to be mindful of their own weaknesses and their own tendency to to be allured by the promises that they could escape suffering. The second occasion that Jesus uses this word was just a few days later after they'd eaten the Passover together and they'd gone to the Garden of Gethsemane taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So... Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. That's that word. Be watchful and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So similarly, the call here to be watchful is in light of Jesus' own betrayal, arrest, suffering and death. He wasn't calling Peter, James and John to be watchful so that they could save him from the crowd with swords and clubs that was about to come and grasp him. But so they would be prepared to face what was going to happen over the next three days and nights. The tribulation that Jesus himself would enter that had been foretold and foreordained from before the foundation of the world. So the call to be watchful isn't so we may escape from hardship and suffering and persecution, but so that we may be ready for if and when it comes. I shouldn't have said if and when it comes. Inevitably, suffering will come. Being watchful is being prepared not to sidestep or escape tribulation but to navigate through it and to come out the other side with that suffering having done the work that God had ordained it for to make us more like Jesus. So what does this watchfulness then look like? Well, we're told 
stands firm in the faith. This isn't a call here to uh, necessarily personal faith. It's not stand firm in your faith. Remember the opening words of chapter 15? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That word for believe there is the same as faith. The faith that we're to stand firm in is this gospel, which has been preached to us and which we have received. And it's also that in which we stand. It's on the basis of the gospel that we can claim to be saved. It's really a false dichotomy to say, my faith isn't in doctrines, it's in a person, in Jesus. We don't know the person of Jesus apart from the doctrines, what's being preached to us, what's being taught to us from the scriptures. Jesus sent his disciples out into the world to both baptise and teach, to bring people into the reality of the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and to pass on through teaching all that Jesus has commanded. So to stand firm in the faith means to be sure that we're not moved from the gospel from the solid foundation of the truth that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, as we saw in chapter 15. You may have heard the sermon illustration. Uh, I'm not, I don't know if this is actually true or whether someone made it up. Regardless, it still serves its purpose. The story goes that police officers who work in the area of counterfeiting are trained to recognise counterfeit money not by studying fake banknotes but by studying the genuine banknotes. Because fake banknotes come with all kinds of different anomalies depending on who, who counterfeited them. One counterfeit will be slightly different to the next. But by knowing the characteristics of the genuine note they can immediately spot a fake the moment they see it. So the more that we study the faith that we've received, the gospel, the word of God, the more we will be able to discern immediately when someone teaches a false gospel. The more we know the tenets of the true faith, the less we'll be susceptible to being deceived or led astray into wrong or unhelpful paths. So stand firm in the faith. Secondly, act like men. Now we know Paul's addressing this letter to both men and women. So in what way is he telling people, regardless of their gender, to act like men? Well, this phrase, act like men, is an echo of the Old Testament's rallying cry given to an army as they prepared to go into battle. Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not fear 
or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Uh, so I think the NIV of our verse in 1 Corinthians 16 translates that as be strong and courageous. It's picking up on that call. Um, we see an even more similar phrase in 1 Samuel. This is, this is given by Philistine leaders to their army. Be, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. We've lost in this generation an appreciation for the metaphor of the church as an army. We feel it sounds too aggressive, maybe too political. Plus we tend to gloss over verses like this because we feel it sounds a bit sexist and so we we push it to the back and it's a bit too difficult to navigate. But the gospel tells us doesn't it, that Jesus is Lord. He's the commander. That means that all who follow him are his army. We see this imagery in Revelation. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is this triumphant warrior king, riding his white horse, leading the victory parade. And the armies of heaven, they're they're the saints The church were identified as such by their fine, white, pure linen because we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we're given honour along with Christ because we too ride on white horses. We are reigning with him. We share in his victory. So this is the Lord's army who can take courage and be strong who can be men and who can fight. I recently saw the news of a war veteran in Alice Springs who'd missed his 100th birthday because of COVID lockdowns. But as soon as they were able, the whole community came out and they paraded past his house to celebrate his 100th birthday. The honour given to him wasn't for being a soldier per se. It wasn't that he was someone whose job it was to fight. But because of his willingness to serve, his willingness to lay down his life and to protect us and our freedoms. I'm sure many parents would want both their sons and their daughters 
to act like that man. Well, that's the kind of honour that's bestowed upon our King, Jesus. See, his robe is dipped in blood. Verse 13. That's his own blood, shed to make his righteousness available to us. His white robe has been stained with blood so that our stained clothes might be made white and pure. And see that his weapon is a sword that comes out of his mouth. That's why he's called the Word of God. He's the one who's gone out to fight on our behalf and he's conquered our great enemies of sin and death and the devil. And so we are his army and we too go out to fight, not with swords against flesh and blood, but in the same way that he has, laying down our lives and with the word of God. See what Revelation 12:11 says, And they have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. See how this describes what it means to act like men and be strong. When the devil comes with accusations of sin and guilt, we stand firm against his accusations with the blood of the lamb, the blood that was shed to atone for our sin and guilt and has taken it away. When we see the devil at work in the world to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel, we go out with our word of testimony. Your testimony is not the story of your own personal conversion. We testify not to ourselves or what has happened in our lives, but to Jesus and what he has done. Moments before John sees this vision of the rider on the white horse, John was told the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we've already seen, haven't we, that we are the prophetic community. We speak of Jesus to ourselves and to one another and to the world around us. And when we're captured by the beauty of Christ and the gospel, and when we realise the great need for others to see and hear and believe and know Jesus, then we'll be ready to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ and out of love for those for whom he died. We will not love our lives so much as to shrink from death because we've been conquered and we've been compelled by the love of Christ. The big danger for the Corinthian church, and likewise a danger for us and for any church, is that we become consumed with our own eternal issues, divisions, squabbles, or with keeping ourselves safe and comfortable 
so that we lose sight of the fact that the church has been called to be participants in God's mission. His mission to bring his glory to every corner of the earth through the proclamation of this gospel message that says Jesus is Lord. Then we're told, let all that you do be done in love. If you haven't yet taken in the repeated message throughout this letter to walk in love, then you haven't been listening. But even though Paul has already stressed the call to love, he devoted a whole section of his letter to describing this love. He considers it worth saying one more time in this context. Let all that you do is referring to all he's just said in verse 13. Be watchful, but be watchful with love. Stand firm in the faith, but stand firm in love. Have both feet of truth and love when you stand firm. So by all means, speak the truth, but if you can't speak it in love, then choose to remain silent. Act like men and be strong, but do it in love. Choose your battles wisely. Decide carefully which hills are worth dying on. Don't become a crusader who sees just certain outcomes of the mission as being more important than the people for whom the mission is designed to save. It's possible, isn't it, as we saw in chapter 13, to give away all we have, to even give up our bodies to be burned for the cause of the gospel, but to do it without love. Loving like Jesus will never be easy. It will certainly be a joy, but it will also at times leave us exhausted and drained, even broken, as we're poured out for others and for Christ. So love requires us to stand firm, to act like men, to be strong, not in our own might and power, but in the Holy Spirit's power. Now it's not a random coincidence then that this call of verses 13 and 14 is given in the middle of that list of people, people to remember. Because we are to look to others who set an example by their own lives of what it means to be watchful, stand firm, act like men and be strong and to do it all in love. Paul mentions this household of Stephanus. He says here they were the first converts in Achaia. Uh, Literally, they were the first fruits. Achaia was the, the region, the Roman region, of which Corinth was the capital city. Now, Stephanus isn't mentioned in the accounts in Acts when the gospel first came to Corinth. Uh, What we do have is this, in Acts 18, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. 
And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptised. So it seems like Titius Justus was the first convert. But there's actually a good case for seeing that Titius Justus, who was also known as Gaius, is actually the same person as Stephanus. As many of you know from your own personal experience, if someone lives in a multicultural community or if you're living in a country that's not of your own uh, origin, people will often go on go by different names depending on the setting. So Gaius Titius Justus was a standard Roman name. However, we know that Titius Justus already had an association with the Jews because he was a worshipper of God. He was a Gentile who worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And it's extremely likely that when he became not only a worshipper of God, but a worshipper of Jesus Christ, that Paul gave him a new name, Stephanus, which means crown bearer. Stephanus and his family hosted the brand new church in Corinth. He was probably its first elder. Even when there was opposition from the Jewish synagogue that was right next door. And this man was compelled to be part of Christ's mission. So much so that he was prepared to track Paul down, probably to deliver the letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul and then to wait while Paul wrote the reply, this letter, and then take it back. Remember the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, dealing with the problem of divisions in the church, as each person wanted to elevate their favourite apostle to the level of celebrity? Each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I think Paul is dropping a subtle hint here, which he makes more explicit in chapter 16. Why bother trying to follow the great apostles when you have amongst yourselves godly people who are worth emulating? Crispus the synagogue ruler, who was publicly beaten beaten for betraying his own people by believing in Jesus as the Christ. And 
Gaius, also known as Stephanus, who as a Roman would have been considered a traitor to Rome by believing that Jesus is Lord. These men are worth following, so listen to them, honour them, submit to their leadership. I recently finished reading a book with some students called Discipling. Its subtitle is How to Help Others Follow Jesus. That, in a way, is our mission statement when we come to church, to be a godly influence on our brothers and sisters as part of the Spirit's work in making them more like Christ and to be influenced by our godly brothers and sisters so that we may be more like Christ. And the last three verses of this letter all focus on Christ. At this point, Paul has taken the pen from the hand of the scribe and written himself. It was a normal custom in that day for people to use a scribe when they were writing letters, but then they would write the last few words themselves as an indication that they'd verified that the scribe had written what they'd said and that they took responsibility for everything that was written. So these four last statements are worth remembering. They're from the hand of Paul himself. Firstly, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now that sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? But it's simply a solemn statement of the truth. Apart from knowing the Lord Jesus, we remain under a curse, the curse of sin. It's a reminder to take the gospel seriously, both to make sure we've believed it ourselves and that we're serious about making it known to others. Secondly, our Lord, come. This is the Aramaic word Maranatha, one of the cries of the first Christians. And it means both our Lord has come and our Lord will come. So we must never lose sight of the promise that just as Christ died, just as he is risen, so too he will come again. Thirdly, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This is, in one sense is kind of a standard benediction to close a letter, but it's infused with significance. It speaks of what we need while we're living in the present and looking forward while we cry out, our Lord, come. We need grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Whatever we face as people, whatever we face as a church, his grace is sufficient for us. We need to know that the grace of the Lord Jesus is not only towards us, but is with us every step of the way. And finally, it seems that Paul could not contain himself Verse 23 would have normally been the way to close the letter. But he's got to express one more time this personal nature of this letter and of his love for the Corinthians. And so, as it should, the love of Christ gets the...